Welcome back, everyone, I hope, to uh, the continuation of our session this afternoon. Um, we're moving to um, an opportunity to hear from uh, Palestinians who live in the UK about their experiences and how it informs their thinking on the way forward for the British government, among other things. Um, and the panel is going to be introduced and chaired by Dr. Imad Karam, who is the executive director of the Global Network Initiatives for Change, whose mission is to inspire, equip, and accompany change makers in the pursuit of a just and peaceful world. He's also an award-winning documentary filmmaker and a trustee of the Balfour Project. So can I hand over to you, please, Dr. Karam? Thank you very much. Phyllis for the kind introduction. Uh, welcome everybody to the Palestinian panel. I'm expecting four panelists uh, to join us eventually uh, who will share some of the life journeys and perspectives uh, on the subject. Um, I can see Adam, I can see Atif, I can see uh, Diana and Marta, you're not speakers. I'm expecting Layla. Waiting for Layla, but she'll be here soon. Okay. And uh, Victor. Do we have Victor, Diana? Yes, shortly. Thank you. So, given that the panel is made up of four speakers, welcome, Victor. Um, one, only one is a woman. I was hoping to start with Layla, but if she doesn't show up in another few seconds, uh, I think we can go ahead and start with another of our panelists. So we'll just give it a few more seconds. Okay, I think we can give Layla the time she needs to join us. And <clears throat> let's start with Adam. Um, so Adam Abdullah is one of the Palfour Project alumni of our peace Advocacy Fellowship Program. He studied Arabic and politics at the University of Leeds, and, he, and now he's doing his postgraduate studies in modern Middle Eastern studies at the University of Oxford. Uh, Adam, welcome, and would you kindly just start us by telling us a little bit more about who you are and how did you and maybe your family ended up living in the UK? Well, thank you very much, Emad, and thank you everyone for joining us for this um, panel. It's a great pleasure to be here with everyone. Um, so I was born in Prague, Czech Republic, in the central in Central Europe, uh, and my father is Palestinian. My mother is Czech, and my family originally come from a city in 48th Palestine called Atira. It's uh, very close to the West Bank city of Tulkarem and uh, it's considered the north of Palestine. Uh, my grandfather was born there and my grandmother was uh, born in Kufr Zibad, which is also close to Tulkarem, but it lies today in the West Bank. Um, my grandfather during uh, the Nakba in 1948 got separated from his family in Tira and he had to run away to Kuwait, which is where my father was born. And um, my father studied uh, petrochemistry in Syria, from which uh, he had to also run away because of uh, the political persecution of the Assad regime, Hafiz al-Assad uh, regime against the Palestinians. And he was lucky to get a scholarship in Czechoslovakia, the Socialist Republic of Czechoslovakia at the time. Uh, and he met my mother at the, at the Economics University in Prague. And uh, that's basically how I was born in Prague. And then I was very lucky to uh, be able to secure a place at the University of Leeds, um, which is where I studied, as you said, Arabic and politics. And now I'm doing my MPhil here at Oxford. So this is, uh, in a nutshell, the journey. Thank you very much, Adam. I'd like to go next to Dr. Atif Ashar, uh, who is a lecturer in Arabic studies at the University of Westminster. Atif, if I'm not mistaken, I think you grew up in Gaza and then went to the West Bank for your studies. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and you did your doctorate at SOAS. 
Yes, yes, yes. Yes. Would you kindly, Atif, also tell us a little bit more about who you are and how did you end up living in the UK? No, I smuggled myself in, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, my name is, uh, well, as you kindly introduced, thank you so much for for this and for for having me on this platform. It's it's wonderful to get to know um, you and and, and others as well. Um, Well, I I grew up in Gaza. I was born in Gaza. Um, My parents are also refugees. They're from um, what is now Beres Sabah. Now it's called Beersheba. Um, and uh, so I grew in Rafah in the south of Gaza until uh, I finished uh, secondary school, Tawjihi. And then I went to study at the University of Berzeit, where I did my um, 1999, which is actually maybe may, there is a, a note there that might be significant. I was one of the last groups to be able to go to the West Bank and study there, because after that, 2000, the Intifada started and Israel effectively shut off Gaza from uh, the rest of the world. So it's very difficult. It's, it's, it, well, it happens, but it's very rare that students go now from Gaza to the West Bank, whereas before you have 500 students every year at Birzeit from, from Gaza or more. So there was a, a population that was very interesting. So I studied at Birzeit University. I did my degree in English language and literature. And then I got um, scholarship and help assistance from friends here in the UK and got accepted at SOAS, uh, where I did my master's and my PhD. Um, and I lived here in the UK since 2003. Um, and uh, then I had my postdoc as well at SOAS, where I also taught for some years. Um, and then moved on to Westminster, where I am now a senior lecturer in Arabic studies. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you, Atif. And maybe just a quick question, given the fact that I'm also a fellow Gazan. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you were able to visit? The first time I visited Gaza was after 18 years of being away from it, which was 2018. 2018. Wow. So it's once in, since, 2000, since 1999, effectively. Thank you, Adif. And we all know this is not per- by by personal choice. No, no, definitely. No, no. I would have loved to, to go there, but it was very difficult. And that journey itself actually was, was extremely hard. And yeah. once I got on, uh, once I, I got into Gaza, the border was uh, almost uh, two weeks on was closed. That's another story. But it is, it's not easy, definitely. Thank you, Adif. Well, I'd like to move next to uh, Victor, and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Victor Katan. Some of you may have uh, listened to him earlier when he spoke. Victor is a senior research fellow at the School of Law at the University of Nottingham. Uh, Victor, would you tell us a little bit more about your personal journey and your family and how did you end up living in the UK, maybe? Sure, so thank you, uh, Imad. Um, so I was born in Khartoum uh, in Sudan. Uh, to my father's Palestinian, originally from um, Bethlehem, and my mother is um, British, originally from a village in Cheshire, so like Adam Winusnus. Um, and um, my father, in many, many ways similar to Adam, he, he studied uh, in the UK at Manchester University, where he met, well, not at Manchester, but, but from being in Manchester and having friend, friends at Manchester University, he met my mother, um, and, and, they, and they got married. Um, his family um, were merchants from Bethlehem. And so he actually had an uncle who already lived in, in Manchester, who actually immigrated to Manchester in the 1920s, so almost a century ago. Um, so he, he already had a community here when, when, when he moved uh, to the UK. Um, and so I studied, um, I didn't stay long in Sudan, um, followed my father in various parts of the world. He, he traveled um, widely for work. Um, but ended up doing my schooling in the UK and, and, and most of my university education also in the UK. Thank, thank you, Victor. And welcome, Leila. Um, thank you. <laughs> just in time, Leila, to be introduced and to be asked the same question. So it is my pleasure to introduce Leila Sansour, who is a renowned uh, filmmaker. Uh, Leila is mostly known for two of her films. The um, the Jeremy Hardy versus the Israeli army of uh, 2003, 
and Open Bethlehem of 2014, both being featured documentaries. Laila, would you kindly just tell us a little bit more about who you are and your life journey uh, coming to the UK? Where did you start and where you, how did you end up here? Please. Well, uh, <clears throat> thank you for having me. Uh, I think uh, maybe I might be not the most usual candidate uh, in terms of the, how identity kind of uh, labels get distributed. <laughs> so I'm half Russian and half Palestinian. And it just so happens that I made my journey here from Russia at the time during the collapse of the Soviet Union. And um, I, I mean, I was born in Moscow, brought up in Palestine, then studied in Moscow, I did a master's in philosophy in Moscow. And just as the, the Soviet Union started going through a very dark time, and I couldn't imagine a future there at all. Uh, but also I wanted to be part of a larger world. I wanted to be in an English speaking country as I saw the English language maybe as the kind of the language of the future of the now and of, and of the future. Uh, so most recently I realized that in answer to why I came to Britain, I wasn't traveling to a country. I think I was traveling into a language that I wanted to yeah. travel into. Uh, so I came here and uh, I settled here. And for a long time, because I came from Russia, I was very often perceived as a Russian. And I perceived myself slightly as a Russian more. But when the second Intifada broke out, somehow my Palestinian side co-opted me almost entirely. Uh, I, uh, uh, people say, you know, the side that needs you most uh, takes over. <laughs> and I think at that point, maybe my Palestinian side took over. And I, um, although I was living here and I'm working here in the media, I started working on many many projects to do with Palestine and made two documentaries and started a campaign against the wall in Bethlehem. So my last film documented the building of the wall and I toured with it, uh, with the idea of trying to use Bethlehem as a doorway into Palestine to introduce people to the situation in Palestine in general through the lens of one small, very famous city. Thank you, Leila. And um, your Russian connection will be quite um, helpful for our conversation later, because we'd love to touch base on the situation between Russia and Ukraine and the impact or how we see it from, through Palestinian eyes. Um, I hope that we could have a conversation, that you can have a conversation amongst yourselves, um, maybe after my second question, which is really both first and second questions just designed to get to know you a little bit more. So what I'd like to know from each one of you is, uh, if you can share with us, how did your family experience the end of the British mandate on Palestine and the beginning of the Palestinian Nakba? Um, I mean, I, I guess I can ask people, I'm gonna change the order a little bit so that we're not going on in the same order. Victor, would you like to start us, please? Sure. Um, my immediate family, so that's my grandfather, was not in Palestine at the time, but he was already in Sudan. However, his brothers were in uh, Bethlehem um, and they were affected, I mean, I mean directly affected. Um, of course, Bethlehem fell to the uh, Transjordanian Arab Legion in, in 1948, uh, so it wasn't occupied. Uh, by uh, the Israelis until 1967, um, so they weren't affected in that in that sense. But of course, they well, the family also owned land in Jaffa, what is now a suburb of Tel Aviv and West Jerusalem. So they this land was co confiscated by the custodian of absentee property, which is a an agency of the Israeli government, um, and uh, so they were still able to travel from Sudan to Bethlehem, where my father was born. Um, even after 1948, but uh, that was not possible after 1967. So my grandfather never went back to to um, Bethlehem. But of course, I, I still have cousins who live live in live in Palestine today in Bethlehem. And do you frequently visit? Um, I wouldn't say frequently, but uh, I, I, last time I was there was four years ago. Um, it's it's I guess easier for me as a British passport. So Bethlehem is. It's getting harder to, to visit, but uh, there are ways and means one can one can you know, try to get in, uh, which I won't discuss. But uh, um, it, it's not as hard as the Gaza Strip to get there. Yes, 
Thank you, Victor. Atif, could you go next, please, and share with us your family's uh, your family's experience of the Nakba and the end of the mandate? Yeah, sure. Uh, this is actually is a, is a question of um, I, it's it's difficult because in a sense my grandfather died when I was very young um, from both sides, mother and father, and also my died my father died not so long after. Um, but I do I the only the, what I know is that. Um, that we still have papers proving um, that we had land there and from the British mandate time. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had been often, you know, um, uh, talking about how can we reclaim this land or what we had before there. But I heard from my relatives that my grandfather used to trade uh, with people in Haifa selling sheep and going there other parts of the coastal areas of Palestine. And that's how I know about, you know, these, this is just little bits and pieces that I know as far as that time goes. But um, they definitely were affected by being dispossessed effectively to Gaza in 1948, uh, where they took a long time to sort of make their life again. And, and, and so you know the story. So that, that's, uh, yeah. I, and I assume no one was able to go back to Beersheba. No, no, no. We they they have uh, you know land registry like these copies, official copies, proving that they have the right to land and so on, and that this is their land. But no, but they they went there as some of my relatives when the including brothers actually as workers yeah. uh, in the agricultural sector. So they used to work maybe on their own land, but it's taken by somebody else. So that's another, yeah. I guess, uh, significant experience um, for them. Thank you, Atif. Layla, would you like to go next, please? Uh, my story on some level, maybe it resembles that of Victor. So because uh, my family comes from Bethlehem, uh, Bejala for those who know the area better. <laughs> it's uh, like part of the, maybe the wider Bethlehem area. Um, so 1948 was not hugely affected affecting my family, did not affect my family hugely, except that my uh, great-grandmother owned the shop in Jerusalem and she had to abandon that and stop trading. Um, it's the same grandmother who actually had her husband leave the country on ships during the Ottoman Empire during the First World War, when a lot of Palestinians had to also flee the Ottoman draft. And um, I think probably my family holds that as also a very massive story, like the whole tragedy of their lives and their upheavals started then because he had to leave the family and he never made it back until he was very old. So my great-grandmother raised my grandfather on her own. Um, it's 1967 maybe that obviously affected my family most because we moved to be immediately under direct military occupation. Uh, and this is the environment in which I grew up. So. In fact, it's not only my family's memory, it's my own memory, where every single act that we needed to do had to be approved and licensed by the Israeli military. So opening a street needed the license, um, any building, uh, any extra building in your, in your own house, any works needed the license from the military. Uh, there was always kind of uh, upset. There were demonstrations in which we all took part uh, at that point most of the uh, protests were um, pretty peaceful, to be honest, really. There was this hope that we could maybe use the language of uh, law and peace on the ground, at least. You know, I know that maybe those in Lebanon had a different situation. But um, so we, I, I remember my life with the occupation in a very visceral and real sense rather than through family stories, because we all lived this, the post-1967 situation. I mean, we used to, I remember my mom, who was Russian, by the way, hiding Palestinian uh, protesters in our water tanks all the time, almost every other day during the first intifada, because they would be attacked. They, If the soldiers caught them, they would have their arms and legs sometimes broken. So you'd kind of always, you are always part of this fabric of uh, the light and the direct military occupation. So that's maybe yep. a more precise description of my life. Mm. Thank, thank you, Leila.
and and it, it's already an amazing picture being drawn of different different backgrounds and different experiences of the same event. Uh, Adam, please, last but not least, on this one. Um, I'd say I already mentioned it in short, but so as I said, my grandfather he was from Atira, which is inside, you know, forty eight, um, and it's interesting because Atira actually was, I believe, the last city uh, which wasn't conquered by the Zionist militias. This, at least this is what I heard from uh, my family. It might, be, it might not be true, but it definitely, this is what I heard. And, but the, so most of my family actually stayed in Palestine and today they are uh, citizens of Israel. But my grandfather, he was working in the West Bank. He was uh, an, a school inspector. Uh, so he was separated from his family and he lived with my grandmother in the Tulkarim area. And um, basically, he couldn't get back to his family in Atlira. So he had only way, one way to go, which was to Kuwait, because in Kuwait at the time, they needed new teachers because um, the local population wasn't very well educated. And so they brought, um, you know, educated people from Palestine, from what was becoming Jordan and other countries. And uh, obviously, uh, so this was the direct way he got affected because um, he couldn't get together with, with his family and he had to build a new life uh, in Kuwait. And I remember asking my father about what was it like growing up in Kuwait. And he said that the life was very difficult for them because my grandfather's dream was to go back to Palestine. And so uh, in the 60s, they acquired uh, property in Tulkarim in the city and uh, he started building a house. So my father told me that they were living in very poor conditions because they were saving money on their life in Kuwait, but spending everything uh, back in Palestine and building a house. And it was nearly finished in 1967. And in June, uh, the Israelis occupied uh, the West Bank and they lost that house again. Uh, so it was like a double Nakba uh, in, in their case. And then my father... Um, Again, he couldn't go back to Palestine ever. And uh, he went to Syria instead and then from Syria uh, to Czechoslovakia. So I'd say, um, so this is, this, this is sort of like a ge um, geographical impact, but also it's interesting because my grandfather died before I was born and he died of um, probably what was a heart attack. And uh, he was a very heavy smoker. And I asked my father, how come that my grandfather smoked? And he told me that he asked him the same question. Why did he smoke? And he said that uh, when he asked him this question, he said, um, when Palestine fell, like it, they said that this, this will help. So this is also an interesting impact, what, what, uh, what it does to people. Thank, thank you, Adam. Yeah, it's part of a sad story, I guess, but um, mm. thank you for, for the anecdote. Um, I'm just wondering, maybe as an open question, if any of you would like to share, coming all the way now to the UK, um, how life has been for you living in the UK with your different identities, as it were? What life, what, what experiences can you share with us of being a Palestinian living or in this country, being British Palestinian, being visiting Palestinian, temporary Palestinian, long-term Palestinian, whatever identity we are? Anyone would like to share some of your experiences living in this country as a Palestinian? At different times? Well, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that if nobody, I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe you're all reflecting, but please, Arthur, go ahead. Well, I think, Ahmad, you and I are the only full breakfast Palestinians. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, well, I think, I mean, uh, I, I came from Palestine. So obviously, as, uh, as you perhaps would have experienced, so we come to really a different culture to us. I didn't live in any other country before. So there's quite a lot to cope with, like language. I lived with an English family for about 13 years. Um, landing from Rafah to Birzeit to Kensington, you can see it's quite a big, diff small difference there. Um, and then studying at SOAS, which was a fascinating experience. So each play, like for me, the UK has been um, 
a place where, you know, uh, just it's a different culture, a different life and all the rest. But also as far as Palestine is concerned, I thought that when I came, when I first came here being at SOAS, I thought that it, it was possible to speak about Palestine more. It was possible to organize. It was possible to be an activist. Um, and I thought this was all, you know, innocently done. There's not much to it. We just do it. Uh, believing in the cause, believing in the justice of the cause, which I still obviously do. But um, with time, it turns out that, uh, you know, there's so much to it, you know, that this is, we live in a country where the environment is not necessarily all welcoming, as I initially assumed. I don't mean the people, but I mean the organizations, the system, the political system, the 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 media organizations etc etc so i think campaigning and talking about palestine has become harder and harder which is unfortunate because actually worldwide we do see a shift in terms of uh, the the way people see palestine their awareness of palestine has risen uh, there is so much that has been documented in terms of israeli abuses against palestinians against the reality of the occupation, which is very oppressive and very destructive. I think, so all of these aspects, one would expect that they will make a, um, a good case for openness in terms of activism, that we can be active, we can organize things at universities where I work, for example. But actually, it turns out to be quite hard um, for various reasons. Another effect on me personally, the fact that I have made the UK my home, I live here, but it's very hard for me to visit, for example, Gaza, that has been a constant concern. And I keep thinking about it because, you know, I'd like my children, for example, or my wife, and all of us as a family to be able to visit. And that that is also, extremely hard so there, and obviously we negotiate our negotiate might not be the right word but it's our identity i am arab palestinian um and it, this is a major and important significant identity for me i come from there i live there etc etc and the uk is also an identity that i have acquired because i am part of the system i live here the language the literature all the things that i have acquired um, uh, or I studied at least. Um, so is, there's constant negotiation between these two identities. I don't find problems as far as, you know, navigating or crossing from one identity to another or assuming one identity at one point and another at another. That That is just part of it that's expected. But there are difficulties to do with, you know, expressing our identity or expressing not not in a flag, not in a in a blade. I don't know how to put it, but suppressing what we um, feel as Palestinians who are attached to the Palestinian cause and attached to our homes and our histories and our um, uh, and and all of these aspects which are significant to us. And I didn't. This is a difficulty in terms of you know, taking part in activism, being active on it, talking about it, this has become, it's it's not, it's not um, as easy as it should be, really. Indeed. Well, thank, thank you, Atif. Um, anyone would... would uh, I, may, like I, that? I, I mean, I think that, um, um, I don't know, personally, why I didn't want, to, why I was reluctant to start answering this question. It's because I don't think I experienced, especially that I've come here with two hats or two identities. I don't feel I've experienced any difference if being Russian or being a Palestinian. So I don't think necessarily, I, mean, I think uh, the, the, the English are, the British are an island, an island folk. And so they are slightly have set in their ways and not necessarily super open to other cultures necessarily, but that's by the by. Um, but I think maybe what is very perceptible to me as a Palestinian is that during my life here, and I, I've been here for decades now, um, I think what shifted, and this is maybe something important for us to understand, is the institutions towards us. So uh, in, insofar as people uh, kind of deal with us, I think there's a lot of goodwill, there's uh, interest. I, for example, work in the media. I'm, I'm currently actually doing this interview uh, from ITV News, where I often freelance. And uh, I don't find that people are even unsympathetic to our cause. 
we will be, I mean, a lot of Palestinians may be surprised to understand just how much people actually are, do sympathize mm -hmm. with our cause. But something happened with the way the culture shifted. And we have to remember that, uh, I mean, we always, uh, the culture of today is the culture of institutions, is the institutions that lead us, is the institutions that uh, set the tone. And the institutions are not for us. So in a way, uh, I think that we are, we, I do feel uncomfortable only when I have to kind of face or speak to the institution, not to people. And as a, somebody living with this identity, that's where it becomes problematic. And that's, I think, also uh, poses big questions about how we, for example, campaign or try and tell our story or change. Because we need to remember that it's not necessarily people as much that we need to change, although uh, I'm not well, disregarding that aspect. But we do really need to think about how is it that we shift institutions to be able to work with us. Layla, and I think we don't do that enough. That's maybe we can come back to that, actually, and yeah. talk about it uh, later. But anyone would like to compare their own experiences, similar or different, of being Palestinian in the UK? And we'll move on otherwise. I mean, I can, I can say something <laughs> if you want to. Like yes, yes, please. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'd see myself as, as, well, as British and, and Palestinian. Um, but I guess my story is, you know, I, I wasn't aware of my Palestinian identity until quite late. You know, it was, wasn't until I was about 16 years old when my father got a job with the World Health Organization in Gaza uh, that I had the opportunity to visit and meet my family in, in Palestine, in Bethlehem. Um, and I guess that that's really from the moment where I, you know, suddenly realized, you know, where my father was from and what had happened to his family. Um, and I was struck by something Leila, Leila Sansur said um, about uh, the, the impact of the second Palestinian Intifada on you when you said that the side that needs you the most takes over. And I, I kind of experienced something similar um, uh, during the Intifada, especially at, at university. I studied with uh, Artef at SOAS. Um, and there was a feeling, you know, you could, you could make change. Um, I guess we were also young, maybe naive <laughs> students. Yeah, um, and there was a feeling at that time, you know, there were, there were big issues going on in the world, the 9-11, the global war on terror, the invasion of Iraq. It was, felt like a different moment. There was a lot of, a lot of interest and activism and opportunities to speak and engagement. Um, and and so I've been living overseas for the last almost last 10 years in Southeast Asia. So I've been watching things from afar in the UK, but it seems to me it's become a lot harder to speak. And I, I personally suffer a lot from what I call self-censorship. You know, I, I often hold back before I say something, um, especially in institutions. Again, as Leila mentioned, as in universities, especially, um, I'm very careful, um, you know, about, about what I say. Um, uh, it took a bit of persuasion uh, to, to join this panel, to be honest, um, oh. <laughs> um, but uh, but I'm happy, I guess, that that, that I've done it. But I, I do feel that for various reasons, which we can discuss if people are interested, it, the, the the ability to speak honestly and openly about this issue is made much more uh, has become much more difficult. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you, Victor. I, I I hope we'll have enough time to come back to maybe finding one or two areas where we can collectively do better um for the for the cause of um, of palestine and bringing peace to palestine and palestinians and to the region uh let's move and touch on the um, what's going on in ukraine and how do we as palestinians experience what do we experience when we watch the the world reaction to what's going on in ukraine what does it provoke in us anything any of you would like and leila in particular you've got this I've experienced a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but let's just um, yeah, just just initially, I'd like to see how we how we experience Ukraine or what's going on in Ukraine as Palestinians, and then maybe move to see if there's any learnings really so yeah. far from what's going on there. So the floor is open. Shall I? Please, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to say, here's a it's a very interesting. It has been a very real roller coaster for me because I experienced this war both as a Palestinian and as a Russian. As a Russian, I obviously find it very important. It completely captivates my heart. I'm really, really uh, angry with the Russian government. 
to a degree that I cannot describe. And I think Palestinians cannot share with me because they kind of rotate in a sphere where their main enemy or the field of the power that comes down on them is the West uh, or the, the, the power that conspires to make their plight more difficult aligns itself with the West. But it doesn't mean that Russia doesn't have its own agency, that the world doesn't have its own other other kind of bad people. And in a way, I uh, am very angry with Russia, to be honest. And uh, I'm kind of very supportive of the Ukrainian effort. I wish the Ukrainians the best. I wish them all the support. Of course, it's difficult. And that's like another conversation. What to do there? What's the best solution? As a Palestinian, like many Palestinians, of course, I experience the frustration of the sense of Ukrainians getting so much support, so much sympathy, so much kind of hoo-ha, and yet we, with such a, a just cause, actually often being, I would say, more gracious than the Ukrainians in terms of how we speak, uh, how respectful we are, how uh, uh, much, how non-aggressive we are. I mean, we've made ourselves so non-aggressive, you know, and still seen uh, within frameworks of aggression somehow. Uh, at the same time, I also get frustrated with Palestinians when they constantly just go on and on about the idea that how come they like the Ukrainians, they uh, kind of look after their own, they, they, uh, it's because they identify with them, it's because they're white, you know. And I think sometimes, yes, okay, maybe it's frustrating that that's the case, but that's kind of the way of the world, unfortunately. People do identify with their own, people do have sympathies with people they identify with, be with better or easier. But what we should be focused on, and I think we've kind of always somehow seemed to not give that aspect enough focus, and that we right. have the right and the international law. So I'm just saying that rather than say love us, I say treat us right under the law. Mm. No, no, you, you just started to talk about the next thing, which is really the learnings and how do we. So please hold on to that thought. I'll yes. come back to you. But just to get the initial. You know, just as the human experience, you know, when I sit and watch television and I see how the media is covering Ukraine in this country, how the politicians are talking about it, it does provoke, provoke certain, you know, feelings, emotions, reactions. So I just wanted to capture that from us and then we'll come back to, if you like, the learnings and the conclusions. Uh, anyone else, please? I think um, if I can jump in, yes, um, it's really actually connected to your position as a Palestinian, and I would like to clarify what I, what I mean as a Palestinian. In the UK, you're very welcome to be Palestinian as long as you don't step over certain red lines, which is not to be actively and politically engaged and act upon this identity that you have. And this is connected to Ukraine. Um, it's connected to Ukraine in a very specific manner, which is that we as Palestinians here in the UK, live in a very particular condition where we are not even allowed to point out the racism which is being committed against us. No one would in any scenario doubt that Ukrainians have the absolute right to speak out against the aggression of the Russian state against their civil, against their country, against their sovereignty. And at the same time, me as a Palestinian, I am not allowed or I'm not encouraged by the state to talk about the aggression that the Israeli state commits against my people. You know, and this can be within the 48 borders, this can be against the population of Gaza, this can be in the West Bank, uh, in the diaspora. And it can also be here in the UK by um, suppressing freedom of speech, by um, constantly putting um, hindrances in your way, in your career. And uh, obviously, um, you know, limiting the sort of platform that you have. So I, I think that especially when you compare it, when, when I see people um, engaging so, you know, immediately with the Ukrainians without any sort of um, knowledge on the subject, um, acting on strictly, you know, sympathetic and emotional uh, grounds, um, and if, you, if I juxtapose this to when I speak to people about Palestine, the level of skepticism that they employ when I try to talk about Israeli human rights violations and Israeli war crimes and the allegations make, made against them, uh, you know, the, the, the difference is quite stark. 
So it's very, yeah. it's very difficult to mm -hmm. be in that position. And I think the, the worst thing about it and what makes the Palestinian experience quite unique is that pointing this out by itself is not allowed in the discourse. Yeah. Th thank you, Adam. Arthur for Victor, can you explain this? I can try. Please, I agree. I agree with much with what as much as what has been said already. Um, I suppose <clears throat> trying to take my Palestinian hat off and wear my British hat. I mean, I suppose one big difference from again a British kind of uh, national security perspective, if you like, would be that you know. Russia is an enemy or is seen as an enemy of this country before the war. You know, that the Putin had assassinated people in the UK, um, you know, used, used um, you know, biological weapons. Um, so there's already, and historically, there's been a lot of enmity going back to the Cold War. Um, so there's already that context, whereas the Israelis have, are perceived to be close allies of the, of the UK. There hasn't been and the Israelis haven't been attacking well, not, not since the assassination of Lord, Mo Lord Moyne in 1945, there hadn't been you know, equivalent actions such as the Russians. And then the Palestinians, unfortunately, some groups don't have the best image. Um, so just to pick one, I know it's a small group, Islamic Jihad, are aligned with Iran, and Iran is an enemy of the UK. So, so there's that kind of context that's also taking place, which may also explain why the government was so fast to react um, to Russia. There are other reasons Russia perhaps is seen as a greater threat. It's closer. I agree with other reasons. There are cultural reasons as well. And okay. um, and I do find these also frustrating as much as, as Adam and others do as well. But, yep. but that's the world we live in, um, as Leila said. Thank you, Victor. Atif, any anything you would like to add? Um, no, I mean, I, I agree with what um, other colleagues have said. I, I, basically, um, I think it was a striking what happened between Russia and Ukraine for us Palestinians in the sense in the way the West treated Ukraine and the way the West has been treating Palestine. Because for a very long time, the West could somehow sugarcoat um, its representation of Palestine in a particular way. This is a complex conflict. This is, you know, the, the two sides, the, the kind of language that was used. It's a language like as if they are like honest brokers or mediators, when it's actually is a symmetrical conflict. It's a case of occupation, direct colonialism, all the things that are now people you know, journalism and media users to depict uh, the situation um, um, as far as Russia's as invasion of Ukraine is concerned. So I think this has become, I think with this invasion, it's become blatantly clear that actually the discourse of double standards that when it comes to Ukraine and Russia is which which is Israel has been doing in Palestine for a very long time, and it's it's recognized international law as an occupying power, um, and at the same time it's supported by the West. You know, it's an occupying power here, supported by the West heavily, so particularly by this country, by the United States. I mean, officially the governments, the people that um, Leila has depicted the picture. I thought very well when she she differentiated between institutions and between the people and i think that's uh, that is sound but i think when it comes to that that this this war has revealed what it has revealed that it actually it is a case of uh you know double standards it is a case of uh the fact that palestinian victims are seen as less significant it is a case of you know racism and uh, discrimination um, and this is something that has become very clear, even with, you know, if we just take Shireen Abu Akhla's case the other day, she been assassinated effectively on our screens. We can see that. Um, and at the same time, you know, that uh, Shireen Abu Akhla died in Jenin, the language that is used, but whereas if a journalist was used, um, whereas if a journalist was killed in Ukraine, uh, you know, for Ukrainian journalists, and obviously it's a crime, you know, I don't say that this is not a crime, but the language will be very emotional and very, very emotive, and it shows that, where the, the reflection on Palestinian victims is really as if they are, 
insignificant, that are immaterial. They don't. So all the things that Edward Said talked about, Orientalism and all the rest. Um, maybe I could think mentioning Edward Said, I thought it was interesting because Edward Said, when he wrote his book, The Question of Palestine in 1979, he said that we Palestinians are sort of, our name now is becoming much more acceptable. You know, the name Palestine, you can say Palestine, you can be an activist for Palestine. That's 17, uh, 1979. And that was seen as a progress. It's unfortunate now we live at a time where anything to do with Palestine is somehow um, is 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 is, uh, is somehow uh, not okay, or or uh, any activism on Palestine is suspected. It's uh, it's put under the radar, as it were, and um, not not sometimes not allowed. Very good people, very decent people. They have very good views. They understand the issues. They don't have a prejudices have been deplatformed and and all the rest. And 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 I think this war has shown, you know, aspects of of, of this. Thank you, Atif. Yeah. So, Leila, back to you to kick us off maybe on the learnings, please. I mean, we as Palestinians have been at it, trying to make the case to the world of a just cause of a people worthy of life and freedom and equality. And it seems things are going against the tide or the tide is going against us. Yes, we might be winning on the, on the international opinion, which, as you pointed, is less effective than, than, than the institutions. But with the Ukraine situation, what do you see uh, one or two or three learnings? Let's just have a reflection on the learnings. What do we, what, what are the takeaways? What do we see as a, yeah. as a chance for us here to, to yeah. implement? Yes, please. I'm going to say, I'm going to say something that may, may, might sound a bit harsh, although I, I don't, I think the harshness is also meant towards myself or it, see, or it, it, or it touches me that as much as I get frustrated with how uh, the West perceives uh, Palestine's uh, plight and tragedy differently to the Ukraine plight and tragedy. I also get very frustrated with us Palestinians who have sort of, sometimes it feels like we do, we should learn the lessons better mm -hmm. and we should stop just talking about and I, idly about how we feel. Uh, uh, partly also because, you know, you're in, we, a lot of us in Britain, I know people, and we all know people who die on the ground, who are in jail on the ground. It's them that should take our priority, and it's them that we should think about, uh, not our, not our feelings. We should be very serious and earnest about planning, in the right way to actually genuinely uh, uh, make whatever we achieve, whatever is whatever tools that are in front of us are in our hands to create a change. And I think that means being very, very serious about where we can push in order to translate uh, a situation and, make, and uh, cause change. And as I said, uh, we can start campaigning against all forms of racism, but that's like, you know, uh, we've, we've known that humanity is non-racism, I don't know for how long, and probably will know it for how long, and we will sh obviously should fight it, but that's gonna be, that's the kind of battle that's uh, for the end of time slightly. But we have a very clear battle, and I think it's a legal battle that we can do better at. Mm -hmm. And we can use it as a focal point if we were serious. I mean, and by serious, I mean, we need to have our own institutions that are seriously focused on a legal effort towards getting Palestinian rights. And all our campaigns, PR campaigns, other campaigns, I think persons should be subservient to that. Because if we can successfully organize such an effort, we will exempt some of the people on the ground from putting their lives all the time at, uh, uh, on the line. Because currently, all that is sustaining us is people on the ground constantly putting themselves there as a, in harm's way. And we talk about smooth, but ideally, I think we should care about people enough to try and make a serious effort to uh, use the tools that are available to us. I think we have not used them enough. Uh, and I can say like, if, if you just think about, let's name the institutions or our projects or efforts that are pursuing legal wins. Where mm -hmm. are they? We don't have any. Try to raise funds among Palestinians for legal uh, efforts. I don't think you can get that. I've known some people who've tried that and we don't. So we should be more serious about uh, 
really wanting victory. And I think what, the, what Ukrainians teach me is that they're so serious about the victory and they really don't lose, lose sight of any tool available to them to use it. And we should do the same. Fascinating. Well, thank, thank you, Leila. That's, that's a good list and a good start. Any comments, anyone? Any additions, any reflections on what we've just heard from Leila? Well, I can uh, yes, come please. in on. Yeah, thank you. No, I think, um, you know, I agree to an extent with what Leila said, definitely. Um, I think what's especially on her last note was fascinating to me and what I'd like to also to bring people's attention to, what, what people obviously already know, is that the difference isn't only in um, the reaction to the victims, but also to the resistance. And I think this is really important. You know, no one's ashamed of putting um, um, tutorials or instructions how to make a Molotov cocktail on their mainstream news network. And then, uh, you know, say, oh, this is brilliant. You know, look how the Ukrainians are making Molotov cocktails. But, but when uh, Palestinian children throw rocks, you know, this is seen as terrorism. So this is, again, you know, the double standard. But I think, you know, exactly, you know, we should take the advantage of this. And if it's, um, and if it's um, you so, know, sort of endorsed by uh, these news outlets um, that, you know, people make Molotov cocktails and they resist an occupation, um, then, you know, we should take advantage of this and pursue this, um, you know, it can be legal, it could be uh, the root of advocacy, you know, sort of, so if I could speak for the, from the position of a student as, as a young person, you know, make the case to your peers, make the case to your university, make the case to your institution that um, if you are supporting, I mean, this is what I've done here in Oxford, you know, we, in, in my college, we sent out a letter of support uh, to the Ukrainian students and to the Ukrainian uh, cause. And, you know, and then the, what I did as well was, uh, in, you know, in a way, I invited people to go to a demonstration for, uh, to commemorate the Nakba. So, you know, we have the tools in our hands, I think. And I think we should also learn from, from the lessons of the past, from the 60s and the 70s, when really great leaps have been made in, uh, the diaspora and they have not been made by sort of pandering or trying to appease um, the western audiences or the western governments or institutions it was a very serious effort for the liberation of our homeland and i think there are lessons to be uh, learned from there definitely and sort of stop being apologetic and uh, yeah. trying to always fit um, the narrative that the western audience sort of wants us to to fit in thank Thank you, Adam. Uh, maybe I'll say it, but in any case, your point about the, the Molotov cocktails and the double standards, I wonder whether it's double standards as much as it's one of two things, possibly. One is ignorance. So this is our inability, if not failure, to make the case that we are people who are actually occupied and needing resistance rather than people who are just violent. Because the the way it comes across, and that's where the media comes in, it doesn't give the full picture. So what you see is, is a form of Palestinian violence rather than Palestinian resistance. And on the other hand, it links to the institutional uh, aspect that Leila talked about, because those institutions have been and are more careful how they um, well, project the, the Palestine-Israel story. Um, so that's that's part of it. So I don't think every journalist or media outlet is just completely um, intentionally, um, you know, uh, making those you know double standards. It's we have a lot to to as Palestinians. I speak here. We have a lot more to do, and I think Leila is right. I mean, how much do we invest uh, personally, uh, and those who can, by the way, I know many who actually sacrificially give for the cause as it were but how coordinated are we how strategic are we how integrated are we uh, how do we have a, a story of success of being palestinian british for example and and countering this massive israeli um, machinery that is presenting it as disputed territory that is disputed that presenting the palestinians as violent not worthy of a state not worthy of freedom and our actions don't, don't always help us. 
So there's there's something there to, to think about. I'm not blaming the victim here, us, but I, be, I do believe that we, we can do more also to help those who are helping us. Um, Victor, uh, Atif, just to finish off on this uh, subject of learnings and- Yeah, one issue that was raised by Leila and Adam was advocacy and legal efforts. Mm -hmm. uh, one, one obvious thing that arises to me from the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is how the West has become suddenly these defenders of inter the international legal order and the UN charter and uh, against the prohibition of the use of force when you know the, this government was, uh, you know, Jettisoning, jettisoning international law during the Brexit talks or threatening to do so. Um, it might be tactically, if it's possible, um, and I have some concerns whether it is possible, but it might be an idea to, you know, point out that there is you know, an occupation, that there is, there is what's happening in the West Bank, numerous international rules have been violated, and try to, if you like, campaign from that angle. The, the only difficulty, however, is that institutions like the International Criminal Court, like the prosecutor who's a Brit, um, Karim Khan, have made it clear that they, they are prior prioritizing the uh, situation in Ukraine over Palestine. Um, I spoke to a senior Palestinian official just a few weeks ago. There were discussions about going to another court and uh, United Nations diplomats from Western countries told the Palestinians not to, um, you know, uh, not to make a big brouhaha about what's happening and their cause to take they don't want the limelight to be taken from ukraine so even now despite all this discussion about justice and international law there's this real politique and palestine unfortunately is always seen as not a priority for these countries you always hear that you're not a priority you're not important enough but nonetheless i think that uh, in terms of advocacy and discourse this is an obvious angle to focus on the international law angle that uh, you know, Israelis and Russians are breaching international law in Ukraine and Palestine. And that's something to, I think that could be, be uh, uh, focused on. Yeah, thank you, Victor. Well, the, the issue is not going away. So Ukraine hopefully will go away soon and, and the situation there will be resolved. So we just need to be uh, ready to bring an end to the Israeli-Palestinian thing and not make the world think that they, continue, that they can continue to live with it. Atif, any, any words to finish off? Um, no, I, I agree. I, I do think that our, our effort should be holistic effort, as it were, because, you know, as Palestinians, British here in the UK, we are not all very well versed in international law, but we, we, know, we know the justice of the cause, we know what, it, what a lot of things that could be done for Palestine. So I think our effort should somehow reflect also our fields. Um, should should we should continue to uh, to organize and to integrate, as you said, and to come together and to speak to each other, and to find ways to somehow find the cracks in an authority, as it were, um, and institutions in this country to make our voice heard. Because as as you said, the people are there. Palestinians are victims, and I don't mean that. You know, to, they're victims, but they're also they have agency. They can talk and they can speak and they can resist. Uh, and we need to make these demands. You know that it is legitimate to talk about them. It's legitimate to uh, to represent them and to somehow uh, speak freely about this issue and to take, um, as just one writer has put it, a moral stand on this issue. It is a moral cause at the end of the day. And this is what we hear uh, to present as much as possible in as many arenas as possible. Uh, and, and yeah. Thank, thank you, Adif. We've got one minute left. Just checking, there's nothing, I mean, any quick words, anyone? Anything you're sitting with? Otherwise, it's, it's been really not enough, but rich, or rich, but not enough time to go deeper. And, to, um, and the conversation is to be continued in many different avenues. And the Balfour Project will certainly continue to push for the agenda of international law and equality and equal rights for all. Speaking as a trustee myself of the Balfour Project. So now we've clocked 20 minutes past five here. So Leila Sansour, Adif Shah, Victor Qatan, and Adam Abdullah, thank you very much. And I hand, hand over back to you, Phyllis.